All right, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. The first part this morning is going to be all you doing the work. Corrective action from the very start, all right? All right, start in Genesis chapter 3. One, chapters 1 through 2 should probably work, but we'll start in Genesis 3, all right? Now, I don't, we don't want to take too long. We could have probably done this before we started um, the live stream, but that's okay. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, those listening to the live stream can just participate or they can listen to silence, so they, they can choose which, whichever way they want to do this. All right, but in Genesis chapter 3, I want you to start going through Genesis 3. You can start skimming, but go through Genesis 3. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how long we can go. We'll try to get as far into Genesis as we can. But go through Genesis 3 and start making a list of everything that would be related to geography. Any geographical information. And just start making a list of the things you see that would be related to geography. Make a list if you can, if you have paper or use your mobile device. Make a list. Well, we're, we're just going to give it a little bit of time to try to make a point. So it'd be great to go from Genesis 3 to 12, but there's no, you know, that would take the whole hour. If we were doing this in a different setting, that's, I would just say, that's what your assignment is and I'll be back. Genesis 3. When you finish Genesis 3, like say amen or something. Because I know there's a few and there should be a couple in Genesis 3. Any geographical information. See what you can find. Right, you finished three? All right, okay, continue on. All right, so we have one who finished Genesis three. How many how many did you find in three? Uh, okay. Okay, all right, good. All right, anything else in there? Now you're in four. Do what? Well, we could. 
but I mean, we already have some in three. You probably should find some in four. Yeah. Okay. 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 Five is a bunch of uh, names of people, right? And then dying. Okay. The land of Nod. Four sixteen. Right. Any in six? Yeah, I understand. Um, nah, I mean, I would not unless it tells you where it was at, where it's being constructed, or anything along those lines. About chapter seven. Well, that's that's the claim. Okay. Well, it could. It could. You don't have a specific location. There, there are things related to geography in those sections. Uh, when we we'll we'll see about that in a minute. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things in seven that are geographical in nature. They just may not have. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. There's lots of things that could relate to it because you have a lot of things about the earth, the water, the effects of the water on the earth, things like that. So things very much related. Then A, yeah, Ararat. And if you, 8, 4. And if you look at Genesis, uh, just if someone wants to look at Genesis 2 and start in verse 8, you'll see lots of geographical things listed there. We could have started in 2, but you look at 2, 8, you can write those things down because there's a number of them. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, right? And then what happened starting in verse 10? Chapter 2, verse 10. A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it was parted and became into four heads, and then it begins to name these rivers. You see them? All right. That's all very, that's all obviously clearly geographical. Yeah, so it mentions all the rivers. Yes, you have lots of things going on there. All right, anything in uh, Genesis 9, if anyone's there? Okay. Right, right. Right. Our chapter nine. Our chapter nine. Yeah, chapter nine. If anybody saw anything in chapter nine, 
definitely uh, in chapter 11, right? And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Everybody, clearly in chapter 11. And then obviously when you get to chapter 12, right? Yes. Yeah, you start Abraham and land and uh, geographical locations are going to become extremely important, all right? So the point is, it's just skimming through. Okay, did you find something? Well, that's something that's something we could would have to possibly look into. I would definitely think it could be greatly related to something geographical. But about how many things did you come up with? I know Sarah's writing them down. About how many have you come up with? Okay. Okay, so you've come up with, what, five, ten? Okay, and just a few chapters, and that's skimming relatively quick. How many did you come up with? Five. Five, all right. So you come up five, six, seven, eight things, depending on, on how you're counting them and how you're break, breaking them down. Some of them are probably repeated. So a, a number of geographical references in just the first few chapters uh, that we've looked at in Genesis, and that is skimming at a high rate of speed. If we slowed down and considered more, we would probably find more. So the point is, whether we want to acknowledge this or not, the Bible is obviously filled with geographical information. It is filled with it. So if we look at a basic definition of geography, we would come up with something like this. Geography is the study of the lands, features, inhabitants, and phenomena of earth. Geography is an all-encompassing discipline that seeks an understanding of earth and its human and natural complexities, not merely where objects are, but also how they have changed and come to be. So it's an all-encompassing discipline of study. Now, for most, and I could be wrong, but I think for most people, when they read the Bible, or even if they do Bible study, you, we read and we see these geographical locations mentioned, yes? And for the most part, what do we do? We may know where it is, or we don't know where it's at, but a lot of times we don't do much with it. We just kind of move on, right? Because we're looking for, you know, we're either looking for the doctrine, the theology, the spiritual lesson, the spiritual picture, what God is saying to me, what God is saying to us, well, how should I be convicted? We're, we're, that's the, I mean, we're trained to look at that kind of thing, right? The geography, we really don't. Now, sometimes in preaching, and I hate this, but a lot of times in preaching, geography, I hate to say it, is simply used so that the pastor can sound somewhat smart. or so, it, it's, it, it, it feels very 
contrived, right? He'll be like, the pastor will be preaching to Abraham. Well, then he went north here, and you know that that's east of this, and that's west of that, and that's five miles from this. And it's like he just, it, it just sounds like he cut and copied it, you know, cut and pasted it from a, a, a commentary. And, and, ever, and I don't know what it's supposed to really demonstrate, because everybody may go, ooh, arah, but nobody really pays attention. It's not like people are dro- dropping that information into their notes. It's some pastors who use visuals, they may even show a map, right? You know, showing where they're going. And, and it just, at times it feels a little contrived. Maybe it's not, but it feels that way, right? It just feels like the information's just being thrown out there. It's very introductory. And then immediately they go into their three points, right? So it sounds like, look, really, I gave you historical background, I gave you geographical background. Now let's just go into these three points that may not have any connection to the background that they just provided, but it at least feels like it does, right? So then you feel like, well, see, they gave me the background, but in reality, they didn't really do anything. I don't like when it comes across that way, but the point is, the Bible's filled with geography. So, I, I would think most Christians have probably never studied biblical geography to any great extent, Right? I, I don't think, I don't know, I, I, I haven't, right? And in any cases, in any schools that I ever attended, it was just kind of basic questions, right? It wasn't any, any, anything study, uh, any great study. Well, a, a particular online school was doing a course on Bible geography, and I was watching the video of it, and I got about 35, 40 minutes into the video, and I kind of got frustrated with it, because I was kind of like, what is this going to do? Because it was just ran, ran, just naming random locations, right? Hey, this, this is here, and then show it like on a map or show a video of it, and then this is here, and then just give you little tidbits about it, but it was like, well, what is, that doesn't seem to help me. Like, there's got to be a, and you know, I'm always challenging the way things are taught. Like, I, I, I don't like the way sermons are pre... I'm always going after the status quo. So I'm like, well, there's got to be a way to deal with biblical geography in a way that's got to be somewhat more beneficial because if, if the geography is in the Bible and you as a, as a church member, as a Christian, you read and study your Bible, how do, I, how do you demonstrate the importance of geography and what do you actually do with it, right? What do you actually do with it? So we're going to start kind of a, a, I don't know how long we're going to go on this. We're going to do a little work on biblical geography and see if we can take the subject and teach it in a way where it actually means something, right? It's got to mean something. It's, it's, I mean, if I, if I throw out a name of a location and you can give me some basic idea where it is, I mean, it, it's got to be more than that, right? Right? It's, it's got to be more than saying, well, Bethlehem is this far from Jerusalem. Like, okay, well, what? Is that important to note, right? It, it's Mount, Mount Sinai was here. Is, I mean, is it good to know? Like, you got to have, there's got to be a reason to know it more than just knowing a fact. Does, does that make sense? I, I, I guess I saw that. I, I, I'm always frustrated with the way things are taught. I'm always frustrated with it. So, like, I used to get very frustrated with, say, uh, I loved World War I, World War II history, Civil War. I loved any, I loved history, especially any history in regards to war. But I always was frustrated because the smart kids, the kids, you know, the Val Victorian salutatorians, all the really smart kids, they would get the A on a test about World War II, World War I. And those tests typically revolved around what? 
dates and places, right? This happened here. What was the date? What was the date for this? And they, they memorized it, regurgitated it for the test. But if you had a five-second conversation with them about World War I or World War II, they couldn't tell you anything. And I'm like, you're, you're the smart one? You're the smart one because you memorized some basic facts? Like, so to me, Bible ge- geography, I don't know how... Did y'all take geography in school? Okay. How was it taught? I, I don't even remember it. Okay. Okay. I mean, didn't they, didn't they basically show you a map and you had to try to be able to play? Now, they always make fun of Americans because Americans are some of the worst in geography. Right? They can show a world map and say, point this out, point this out, and Americans are like, what, 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 what is... Yeah, yeah well, I know we can't even get the 50, but I'm just saying, we definitely comes to other countries. We don't have a clue, right? We don't even know, right? right. Well, but that's typically the way it was taught, Right. Hey, you got to be able to find the place on the map. And if you can understand, as even more so now, back, back in, in my day, it would have been different. But, I mean, even then, the kids didn't care. Now we'd be like, why do I need to know it? I can ask, I can ask Alexa, Siri, I can ask anything. I don't, I don't need to know, right? But, but again, there was a, what, where, where was the disconnect? Why knowing this is going to matter to what? To anything. Well, I hate to say it, Bible students are the same way. If I go through those locations and say, okay, where was that location? Even if I tell you where it was, what's, what's the question you should probably ask? Here, let's state it this way. Here, here's, the, here's the question, here's the kind of the thesis that we're going to try to work from. Why or how does knowing anything about biblical geography impact your understanding of the actual text? Many of you have spent years studying the Bible. Your lack of biblical geography or knowledge of it, does it impact, has it impacted your understanding of Scripture? Well, that's, the, that's kind of the thesis, right? That's what we have to see. Does understanding it help your understanding of Scripture or does it not? Now, the claim is always, if you get Bible geography, then you can understand the Bible. Well, that would seem to imply what? That uh, the way I can test Sarah's understanding of Scripture is to give her a Bible geography test. If you fail the geography test, then I can say you don't, you don't know Scripture. Well, that would end a lot of doctrinal disputes, right? Someone starts arguing, you say, well, wait, wait a second, here's my geography test. You, give, you get 100, then I will listen to you. Okay, I don't think that, <laughs> that, that would be a good way to stop a lot of arguing, but the point is nobody, no, I don't think anyone really believe. everyone hears the sermons that say it matters, but I don't think anyone actually believes it matters, because if you believed it mattered, everyone would be doing what? Studying geography. So I, I, I'm going to put forth the hypothesis that let's say that it does and we're going to test it because that's what I like to do. I think it can matter. Here, my theory is it can matter, but we would have to completely change the way it's taught forever. And I don't know if I'm the one to know how to f- figure out how to teach it. All right. I don't know if I, I, I am the one, but I, it's got all I know is the Bible's filled with it. 
Sometimes. Yeah, in, so, in some cases. Now, now, obviously, the Bible, it's all kinds of areas, right? Yeah, so, so but, but the, 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 I think the issue is, if we believe the Bible is inspired, right? Then we have to believe God wanted it. He gave us the information for some reason. Correct? So we're going to try to figure that out. So are we ready? Let's, let's just jump in and see what we can figure out, okay? I, I, we'll start with this kind of statement. The Bible is not a geography book. It's a book filled with geography. It's not, it's not a geography book, but it's a book filled with geography. I think that immediately kind of gives me a direction, right? I don't approach the Bible like it's a geography book, right? I don't approach it. But I cannot deny that it's filled with it. So my, my job then, if it's filled with it, how does that information impact the rest of the information, right? Because we say the Bible is a book that reveals God to us. It reveals salvation to us. It reveals theology and doctrine. And it is profitable for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work, right? I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing some scriptures there, right? So if that is true... As a newborn babe, desire it that you may grow thereby. If I'm supposed to study it and read it and memorize it, does that mean I just ignore all of the geography? Well, you would argue that it, we shouldn't, but at the same time, we shouldn't approach it as just it's a geography textbook, right? So we have to figure out how the geography impacts all of that other information. Now, we, I don't know if it does or I don't know if it doesn't. If it does impact it, then nobody should ever be arguing about the other stuff until they can master geography. If it doesn't impact it, then the question is, should we even bother studying it? So I'm, I'm, I'm playing a little bit of Deadville's advocate here, but here we go. So let's start, what is geography? According to one uh, Bible university, they broke it down this way. They said geography falls into three categories. So we're going to go with their idea of what is, we're going to say, what is Bible geography? And they're going to argue Bible geography or biblical geography falls into three categories. Three categories. Does anybody know the three categories biblical geography falls into? Okay. Yeah, three categories. You ready for the first one? Physical geography. Physical geography. I'm just going to give you the three, and then we'll break each one out. Physical geography. The second is human geography. Well, we're going to break them down in a second here. Physical geography, human geography. The third is natural history. Physical geography human geography, and natural history. Now, these are all related, but they are different. They're related, but they are different, and the Bible has an example of all three, or has examples, plural, of all three. Okay, so what are the three categories? At least one Bible university breaks these down into three categories. What are they? Number one, Physical, number two, 
Human, number th uh, three, natural history. Now, let's try to explain what each one of these is or, or, or are. Okay, you ready? Physical geography. Physical geography studies the natural features of the earth and the natural forces that affect them. Physical geography studies the natural features of the earth and the natural forces that affect them. Now, when we study the natural features of the earth, what are we talking about? Plains, valleys, mountains, hills, right? Any tree, just the natural things, the natural landscape, right? The natural features of the earth. And the Bible is sometimes gives us the natural features of an area, right? Sometimes it gives us that information. Why? Uh, it, 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 it does it over and over and over. So the question is, do, why, do, why is God telling us that? Why, why are the authors telling us that? Now, they're, they're, well, we'll get into the why later, but just note, the Bible's filled with this. There's no, I don't think there's even a debate on that. Okay, and the natural forces that affect them. Well, the Bible sometimes talks about the natural forces that affect a specific area. Maybe about storms or a drought or a famine or something along those lines, right? That's physical geography. Okay, everybody got that? Second, human geography. The way in which human beings interact and respond to that geography. How they grow food. How to secure water, the, how they build shelter, their traveling, labeling of locations, or burying family members. Human geography tells about the way in which human beings interact and respond to that geography. And lots of times in the Bible, it describes things that people are doing, but it's a response to the geography. So if you don't understand the physical geography, you may not understand their actions. Does that make sense? So that could have an impact in how you understand the scriptures. Right? Well, why did they go here? Why did they do this? Or why did they do that? Exactly. Right. Dif different things along those lines. So in many cases, you've got to understand the physical geography to understand the human actions, right? Or the human geography. So there at least proves in part... That in many cases, you are not understanding in any meaningful way what these people are doing unless you understand the physical geography. Now, the million-dollar question is, maybe I don't understand why they're doing that. Does that impact my ability to understand the biblical or spiritual teaching? Right? I don't know. I don't know. But that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the theory that we'll, we'll work on, all right? Then the third is natural history. The plants, insects, trees, and animals that inhabit a region. The plants, the insects, trees, and animals that inhabit a region. All right. Has everybody got that? So what are the three? Number one. Physical. What is physical uh, geography? Natural features and the natural forces that affect them. Human geography. What is it? 
the way humans interact with and respond to the geography, right? Everything from growing food, securing water, building shelter, traveling, labeling locations, and burying family members, okay? Natural history is what? Plants, insects, trees, and animals that inhabit a region. So, we're going to look at how now, we're going to look at how these things show up in certain parts of the Bible. We're going to try to do this as quickly as we can, but we're going to go, go try to find some examples of these, okay? Now, I'm just going to throw this out there. We'll talk about this more and more. This is very important. God used people to write the Bible. That's a fact, okay? And it is possible that they were influenced or is it possible, I can pose it as a question or I can pose it as a statement, is it possible that those human authors were greatly influenced by where they were from and that information actually shows up in the text? Now, remember when we, when we speak of divine inspiration, remember there's different views of inspiration, right? There's the dictation view where God just dictates word for word for word for word. And a lot of, most people reject that view of inspiration. The other view is that God kind of guides them, but the people's, the human author's style and influence shows up in the writing. And we can see that. Paul's very different than Peter. John is very different. A little bit of their humanity comes through. Well, human beings are greatly impacted by where they're from and the geography of the region. Because if, if, if you're reading something from someone from Texas... Their writing may be filled with stories about a tornado or a hellstorm or a dust storm all happening the same day, right? Okay, rattlesnakes, chupacabras, okay? All right, well, that's you know, mythical, but you get the idea, right? There's going to be things we're going to be talking about. Someone from Minnesota, who knows what they may be talking about, right? Snow or whatever they do up there, okay? Right? Cold, whatever. So, but you could, so in other words, just sometimes reading someone's writing, you almost can get an idea possibly of at least the region they're from. It's gonna, so possibly some of the things in, in, in the Bible, it, that, that's gonna influence the writing. Maybe, maybe it's important to know. I, I don't know. But let's look at some s- sections of scripture. Go to Psalm 125. Go to Psalm 125. Tell me when you find Psalm 125. All right, what is the first thing you see about Psalm 125? Go, okay, no, no, no. Look, look before you see the text. A song of degrees. Now, immediately we should stop. Okay? All right, a song of degrees. No, I'll never forget when I dealt with one of the headings of a psalm and someone got mad at me for wasting their time. But okay, I, I, to me, if it's in the Bible, it's important, right? Okay, whatever it's there, whatever it's there, it's there, okay? But you know, people want to come to church and don't want me to do that kind of, oh, just sometimes it drives me crazy. Okay, or song of ascents. Okay, song of degrees or song of ascent. Now, a song of degrees, anybody know what they are? Okay, well, they are, okay, but first they're a collection of 15 psalms, all right? Uh, the, uh, in the book of psalms, uh, these psalms are known as song of ascents, pilgrim songs. The reason they are called songs of degrees is not entirely 
clear. Some scholars believe that it may refer to songs sung by uh, them as they ascended the steps of the temple in Jerusalem during religious festivals. So some say as once they got to the steps and started going up the steps, that that's why they're called the Song of Ascents or Song of Degrees. However, uh, the Song of Degrees are characterized by their themes of pilgrimage, unity and worship. They were like, li- likely sung, this is very important, they were likely sung by the Israelites as they journeyed to Jerusalem for religious feast. Meaning that they are sung as people are doing what? Traveling. And as you travel, what do you encounter? Geography, okay? Geography, right? So that means there's a possibility that in some of these songs, that kind of thing may show up. So let's look at Psalm 125 and see if you can just start looking at Psalm 125 and start noticing the geographical locations and how quickly you can find them and how many you see. Well, just look at verses 1 through 2. You should see three, right? Mount Zion, mountains, Jerusalem. Do you see that? All right. Well, that's kind of your physical geography, is it not? Do you see your physical geography right there? We have Mount Zion, mountains, and Jerusalem. And look, they that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion. Well, now, right there tells me what? If those who trust in God are as Mount Zion, I can't understand that until I do what? I got to understand why would it be compared to Mount Zion? What is Mount Zion? Why, why would it be compared to that? Not only that, which cannot be removed. Now, now see, here's where I'll play devil's advocate. Do I need to know anything about Mount Zion to understand that? I'm going to play devil's advocate. Right. Well, I'm just saying, according to that verse, do I need to know anything about Mount Zion? Do I even need to know that it's real to understand that verse? It's not a trick question. Well, the text tells me, right? I don't need to go do anything. I don't need to really truly understand that. The text tells me whatever Mount Zion is, I don't need to know it. It just tells me it cannot what? Be removed. Therefore, those who trust in God cannot be removed. In other words, I don't... Now, now I could go try to figure out everything about Mount Zion. I'm just going to play the devil's advocate here that the text kind of tells me what it wants me to understand about it, right? Now, maybe if I go study Mount Zion, it will make it more clear, but I think the text here is not going to leave me in doubt. That's my, that's my art. I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm playing devil's advocate. I know uh, that always makes people nervous, but that's okay, all right? Um, but abideth forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth, even more. Do I need to know anything about the mountains around Jerusalem to understand verse 2? I, I, I don't need to necessarily know. Now, if I go look at it, would it become a little bit more clear? Yes. So what we can say so far is this passage contains physical geography. Understanding the physical geography is not going to really make me understand the text more, but it will make me understand what? 
the imagery that is being used. Correct? Right? So if someone, someone could tell me about a location and give me something about it, I may, I may have some idea what they're talking about, but if I go see a picture or a video or I look at something about it, then all of a sudden it may make more sense. Yes? All right. So I think we can definitely see that it could add clarity here. All right. That's all physical geography. Now go to Mark chapter four, verse 37. Mark 4.37. Mark 4.37. All right. Mark 4.35. Well, we'll go to 35 for context, okay? And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over unto the... Other side. Everybody see that? Okay, so right there, now we have some physical location because we got to figure out where he is and where he's going, right? That would give us... Now, ultimately, though, let's once again be clear. If I don't really know where he is and where he's going, does it have any major impact on this? Probably not. I doubt a lot of people stop to try to figure that out. Some pastors may point it out, right? Because it makes it... It adds to the sermon. It makes it sound like the pastor's more authoritative. So you can kind of use it for a manipulative technique. I'm not a big fan of that, but you can. All right, verse 36. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was into the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Now possibly understanding where he was, where he was going, and understanding the body of water they were crossing may give me what? Greater insight to this storm. But guess what? We have a storm here. That's a part of physical geography, is it not? Physical geography is also the natural forces that does what? Affects things, okay? There's an example of physical geography, all right? Go to Luke chapter 9, Verse 62. All right, Luke 9.62. What do we read about in Luke 9.62? All right, we have the idea of a plow, right? Now, this, this begins to fall into human geography because we have a plow. We know humans do what with those plows? They plow, right? And so now this is being used. Now, why is it being used? Well, because Jesus is using this illustration because everyone, he knows everyone at that time would be very familiar with what? A plow. Now, at this time, when Jesus is talking, the plow that he's referring to is known as a scratch plow. It's a scratch plow. It was a simple tool used for, for, for plowing up, tilling the soil. It was typically made of wood, consisted of a, of a, a, consisting basically of this like piece of wood with a metal or wooden blade to it. There's not much to it. It's just like a little thing you hold and it's got the blade at the bottom. And guess what? It was pulled by animals such as oxen or donkeys and used to break up the soil in preparation for planting the crops. The scratch plow was a, pr- was a primi- primitive 
of a plow used in ancient agricultural societies, including those in biblical times. It was not efficient or effective as a modern plow, but it served the purpose of turning over the soil and preparing it for planting. The scratch plow helped farmers cultivate their land and produce food for their communities. The use of the scratch plow is mentioned in the Bible. Look at Proverbs 20, verse 4. Proverbs 24, what does it say? All right, so it compares a lazy person who will not plow to the person, to someone who begs during the harvest and receives nothing, right? The reference highlights the importance of different and timely agricultural work, including the use of tools like the scratch plow in biblical times. Now, how, does, how is Jesus using it in Luke 9? The first passage I told you to look at, or the one just before this, Luke nine sixty two. What's the point Jesus is making there? All right, so the idea is that, hey, if you're going to start plowing, obviously Jesus is using it as a metaphor, right? If you're going to plow spiritually speaking, then if you put your, and then you look back, you're not fit, right? So in other words, if you're going to plow, you got to finish what you are plowing. But he's using language that would, who would understand? The people at the time. Now, do I need to really understand all that information about a scratch plow? Not really. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm going to play devil's advocate, right? I know this is counterintuitive because I'm supposed to be teaching geography, but in some ways I'm arguing about the teaching of geography. But I'm just showing you that I can still understand the basic idea of what Jesus... I may not know. We all understand it. We, the only thing we would need to know is basically what plowing is, right? We would just need a basic understanding of plowing. I would need to know everything about this. But he's using... The fact is, he's using human geography in order to make a point, and, and so did Proverbs. Does that make sense? All right. Go to Luke chapter 14. Oh, we're going to run out of time. Luke 14. Look at 34 and 35. You're going to have, I think, three things uh, named here. Luke 14, 34 to 35. Three things are going to be mentioned here. Or at least I broke it down to three. Luke th- uh, 14, 34 to 35. What do you see? Okay, everybody see salt? Okay, next. Land and dunghill. All right, three things, right? Everybody see those? Land, salt, land, and dunghill. Everybody see that? Okay, all right. Now, In New Testament times, salt was a valuable commodity with several several, uh, symbolic uses in the New Testament. Salt was used as a seasoning to enhance the flavor of food, as a preservation to prevent decay, and as a symbol of purity. In the Bible, salt is often used metaphorically to represent qualities such as wisdom, purity, and preservation. So, salt is being used here. Now, he, there, the idea of salt is being used in a, he's using it in a metaphorical way to a, to a level, but he's also using it in a way that would make sense to that time. What does he talk about salt at that, at that particular, in that particular passage? How is salt being used in that particular passage? 
Well, what is he saying about it? Okay, right? If the salt is no good, then what? It's not useful, right? So, but, the, but it, meaning that salt can be useful, right? So, but you'd have to have some idea of salt to get some maybe idea of what he's saying, correct? Right? Now, the significance of salt in relation to a dunghill can be found in the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, where he says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile or the dunghill. It is thrown out. The statement emphasizes the importance of maintaining the qualities of salt, such as its flavor and preservative properties. By comparing salt that has lost its saltiness to something unfit for the soil or even the dunghill, Jesus is highlighting the uselessness of salt that has lost its essential properties. And in this context, the reference to the dunghill serves to emphasize the idea that salt that has lost its effectiveness is no longer useful for any purpose. But okay, all of those things all fit to what people using salt. Salt was a very common thing that human beings used, right? And it's and it's a ref, it's it's showing you, hey, this salt is it's not good for anything. It's not good for the land, it's not good for the dunghill if it loses its effectiveness or its savor or its saltiness or however you want to put put so. So again, Maybe understanding the significance of salt in that culture helps us understand the illustration a little bit, but I think we can get the basic idea, right? I don't know if we need to know understand all of that. I, again, I think what we're seeing is that in almost every case, understanding some of these geographical aspects or how humans use these tools or use different things, it only provides a little bit of clarity or insight I don't think it has, we've yet to prove that it's what? I don't think we've proved it's essential. And I know that that goes against anyone teaching geography, but we just got to be honest with it, right? We just got to be, uh, we got to be honest with it, okay? Uh, there's more I could talk there about salt, but okay. So there we have it. So that's all human geography, a plow, salt, all of that, okay? Now, natural history, we got to go quickly. Go to Psalm 92.12. Psalm 92.12. All right, what's mentioned there that would fall into natural history? We have a palm tree and a cedar in Lebanon. Everybody see that? Palm tree and a cedar in Lebanon. Now, the mention of the palm tree and the cedar carries symbolic significance related to the righteous and the wicked, the verse reads, the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Now, let me stop right here. Let's stop right here. In this particular verse, do we need to understand some things before this verse makes any real true sense? Okay. 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 So yeah, I think. Right. It adds clarity, but the. Right. Right. But I'm saying the verse itself once again does what. 
explains it, right? Explains it, right? In other words, it doesn't just say, hey, you're like a palm tree, you're like a cedar, and not give you any explanation. Well, then you would have to go study palm trees and cedars to understand why in the world is it using it? How does the verse read specifically? I'm going to turn. Go ahead. Okay, flourish like a palm tree, meaning that obviously we know then palm trees somehow flourish, right? And should grow like a seed. So clearly, we, we, we're getting, he's telling us exactly what he wants us to understand from it. Now, I, if I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a little bit of information here just to show you that may, how maybe this would, uh, would help, right? Palm tree. The palm tree is often associated with resilience, victory, and righteousness and biblical symbolism. The palm tree is known for its ability to thrive in arid conditions and to stand tall even in the face of adversity, symbolizing the strength and endurance of the righteous. Just as the palm tree provides shade and sustenance, the righteous are seen as a source of support and nourishment to others around them. So in this particular case, in Psalm 92.12, it's being used, the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. In other words, the palm tree, even, now, now here, this, the only thing it may help us with is this. Palm trees seem to flourish in difficult climates. They flourish where other trees would die off. And so the righteous should flourish even in difficult circumstances. Now, we could look at this practically or we could look at this positionally. We won't get into all of that. The point, so maybe knowing a little bit about the tree helps a little bit, but I can still get the basic idea. Now, how about the cedar? The cedar tree, particularly the cedars of Lebanon, is a symbol of strength, majesty, durability, and biblical imagery. The cedars of Lebanon were were highly valued for their quality and were used in the construction of temples and palaces, signifying grandeur and stability. The uh, The growth of the righteous person being compared to a cedar emphasizes their spiritual strength, depth, and growth in faith. But we can pretty much get that from... The text. So once again, is it is it Bible colleges? Is it seminaries? Is it pastors who maybe we oversell the importance of geography? I don't know, but I think it's something that we have to at least consider. All right. Then uh, we'll go quickly. Go to Matthew chapter eight, verse twenty. I don't have time to go. I got so many notes on this. I could take the next hour for this. Okay, but we'll go through this. Matthew 8, 20, you're going to have three things, I think, mentioned. We have foxes. Okay, you go, so you got a lot. Well, I'm going to put foxes, birds. Okay, obviously the foxes are connected to the holes and the birds are connected to the nest. And then no place for the Son of Man. See that? All right, so... During New Testament times, foxes were common animals in the region where Jesus lived and taught. Foxes known to inhabit dens, burrows in the terrain of Palestine. Hence, our key points, here are some key points about foxes and their dens. Habitat. habitat. Foxes in ancient world typically lived in rows dug in the ground, particularly in certain areas. These dens... Uh, shelter and protection for the foxes from predators, or get offered protection for, uh, the fo- for the foxes from predators and the elements. So they would dig in the, these little like burrows so to, to hide and have shelter. All right. 
I don't know if that's going to help you understand the text, but all right. Uh, in Jewish and ancient Near Eastern cultures, foxes were often associated with cunning, craftiness, and slyness. The mention of foxes in the Bible, including by Jesus and his teaching, may carry symbolic significance related to these traits. Biblical references, besides the mention in Matthew 8.20 about foxes having dens, there are some references to foxes in the Bible, for example, the Song of Solomon, and talks a little bit about that. In ancient times, people who, who would have been familiar with the behavior of foxes and their habitats of living in dens, this knowledge would have added context to the teaching and metaphors used by Jesus and other biblical figures when referencing foxes. All right. Now I can go to the birds and their nest and all the things about their nesting. So there's a lot here, but when it's all said and done, I can give you all of that information. Preachers love to do that, right? Because I can, I can do this and you can, they can mention the fox. They can even show a picture if they're using visual, you know, learning tools. And then you go like, Ooh, that's a cool little fox. None of it ultimately will matter. Go back to the verse. Do we understand the verse? What does the verse say? So if you're going to follow me, you could, you may not have a home. I mean, it's, I don't need to know everything about, I, I mean, I can give you all that information and it adds, like, it makes the preaching sound like, man, this guy's been doing a lot of work. All, all the person did was just copy something down. Like, it, it's no big deal. To me, I, I hate when certain disciplines are used as manipulative techniques in preaching. And because they're manipulative. Because they give the impression of, of great learning when all it is is just great reading and copying, okay? Because congratulations, you know everything about the kind of fox. I could probably give you some information about the, I mean, I've got, I got like three pages of notes here on the foxes and the birds. I could give you all the information, but the ultimate idea is I need to know the verse. Does that help me understand the verse? It may explain why Jesus is using foxes and birds, right? Why is he using foxes and birds? Because the people at that time in that area would have known foxes were roaming all over the place. And I don't care where you live, birds are everywhere. Everyone knows birds, right? You ever been in Abilene in certain parts when the sun's going down? They're everywhere. Well, true. Right. I'm just saying foxes obviously were common in the area. So. You could put any animal that burrows or have a hole for shelter and it would get the same, uh, the same idea. We could use an armadillo. Now, the reason it's used is it does demonstrate the animal in that area. So it may, but it doesn't really help us with the, with the text. So, but those are the three areas. So what are the three areas? I, I, I want to go into more here, but I don't think it's going to help us. In the Bible, God over and over and over and over again shares his word in the context of geography. That is true. And what are the three categories of geography, of biblical geography? Physical, human, and natural. Now, or I'm sorry, natural history? Right, okay, all right. So physical, natural, and Okay, physical, human, and natural history. Okay, I'm trying to make sure we have them down. Okay, so everyone got those? Now, what we have seen is that biblical geography does at least provide what? Insight and clarification, 
But in most cases, the text using it does it, offers what you need to know to understand the verse. All right? Now, maybe we're going to get to some examples where it does not. So what we're going to do, we're going to do some more work on geography maybe tonight, but we're going to do some experiments, some study, where we're going to look for geography in the Bible, and then we're going to see what we can learn about the geographical area, and what we're going to try to figure out is, does it provide what? something substantive to the text itself so that we're like, oh, I understand now this more than I would have understood it prior to, all right? We're going to be using at least two resources. Um, well, we'll probably be using three. A Bible dictionary, and obviously we'll use them some. Uh, maybe a Bible encyclopedia. We're going to be using the New Moody Atlas of the Bible, the New Moody Atlas of the Bible, and the Hallman Illustrated Guide to Biblical Geography. We're going to be using those two tools. Uh, the Hallman Illustrated Guide, I think, will arrive today, so I may bring it tonight. Um, New Moody, I think, shows up Monday, so maybe we'll use it Wednesday. But we're, we're just going to, I don't know how, we're not going to go, like, super long. We're going to do some basic overview of biblical geography. We'll do some more lessons on it. But what we're going to do is, we, once we kind of get the basic hypotheses for geography, then we'll just do some work. Like, we did a little bit of work already, right? And the biblical passages we looked at so far, the geography added clarification, but it was not essential. Can we agree to that? It added clarification, but it was not essential. All right? And so, just so that we know, I'll state them again, the three categories is physical, human, and natural. Those are the three categories of biblical geography. Physical, human, and natural history. Right? We got that? Now, we know them, and did the Bible have an example for all three? Absolutely. The Bible had examples for all three, but we feel that, at least I feel, that those three only provided slight clarification. Maybe, give, maybe, maybe it does more in explaining why it's being used, more than, than anything else. Like, why are they using this? Well, they're using this because this is the geography of of the area in which the Bible was written. So it may give us an explanation, but I mean, I don't think we need to study geography to understand that, right? Why is Jesus mentioning foxes? Well, because foxes were common. In that. I mean, you can just assume that that's the reason, right? Why, why is he mentioning salt? Because salt was used frequently by the people. Why is he mentioning plowing? Because obviously it was an agricultural culture that did what? Plow. So, I mean, we don't need to know, we don't need to know a lot of that to be able to figure that out. Sometimes we oversell the importance of something. I'm not diminishing it, but I'm going to try to take a more realistic approach. Because if we take a more realistic approach, we'll see. And then we will see what we gain from it. So after, I don't know, two, three lessons, you can say, hmm. Wow, I know the ge geography of the Bible better than I ever have, and it mean, and you can tell me what it means to you. You can tell me what it does for you, right? You can tell me because you you already found a lot of geography in Genesis. You may not know anything about those locations. If you find out more about those locations, is it going to immediately help you understand those passages in Genesis better? Well, we'll wait and see. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we understand that in your Word there is this information. We need to know what to do with this information. 
Simply knowing it so that we can brag is not the, the desired result, but understanding it so that we can understand your word is. Help us see how to do that so that we can better understand your word uh, by understanding the geography that is mentioned. And forgive us if we use it in an incorrect way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,